Back in 1981, there was a movie that came out, which at the very least, you probably know the name of it, is called Chariots of Fire. It was a movie that received a bunch of different awards, including an Academy Award as the best picture of the year. And the movie is focused on one man named Eric Little, who is an Olympic sprinter and also a devoted Christian. And the most famous quote from the movie comes from Eric Little. And he said, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Now, as famous and well-known as this quote is, it is not actually the quote that sticks with me the most when I think about chariots of fire. The quote that, that sticks in my mind the most comes from another man, one of the other main characters, named Harold Abrahams. Harold Abrahams is also an Olympic sprinter, sort of the antagonist of the movie. And whereas Eric Little, when he runs, feels tremendous joy, Harold Abrahams feels tremendous stress. And you can see the stress, this angst on his face before each race. And at one point, he described why he feels all the stress when he runs. And he says, you know, now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? So he says, I have ten lonely seconds to justify my existence. About the length of time it takes him to run a hundred yards. Ten seconds. And this idea of justifying his existence is he's saying... If I do well in that race, I will feel like I have validated my sense of worth, like I am someone significant, someone special. But if I don't win, my life essentially is a failure. That is how much weight he is placing on his, his performance in that race. And that, that is why, for obvious reasons, why he feels so much stress and angst when it comes to this. And I think some of us, when we think about this, we may think, how sad to put so much weight on a race. Yet at the same time, if we're honest with ourselves, I think we have to recognize that how, how familiar this feeling is as well, of putting so much weight on our performance and how we're doing in something. Because in this world, and especially as Americans, it is very easy to put our sense of worth and well-being and validation and even justification on the things that we do, on our performance in our jobs, in our school, on our performance as a parent. Because if, if, our parent, if our children are behaving well, we feel pretty good about ourselves as a parent. If our children are misbehaving, well, we feel a bit like a failure. Or if we're getting a lot of compliments, if people are patting us on the back, people say you're beautiful, people say you're, you're such a good athlete, people say we couldn't do this without you, then you feel really good about yourself. But on the other hand, if you're struggling in work, if you're struggling in school, if you don't think you look pretty when you look in a mirror, if you're, if you're not making much money, if you're struggling to make ends meet, it's easy to feel like a failure, because so often in our society, we feel like we need to prove our worth. And if we aren't making the cut, if we aren't living up to the standards that we set ourselves for ourselves, or that we feel like others have for us, we feel like a failure. So what ends up happening is this endless, tiring cycle of needing to prove ourselves. Just like Harold Abraham said, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Now, I don't believe this is how God designed us to live. 
I don't think that he designed us so that we look at our, how we're doing our jobs, how we look at how we're running our church, how we look at how our, our children are doing as a reflection of our parenting. I don't think he designed us to look at our performance in these things or the outcomes in these things to be that source of identity and significance and purpose in life. But it's still so easy to go back to those things thinking, well, that's what really validates me. But what's the solution? How do we get off that performance treadmill of always needing to prove and validate ourselves? Well, that's what we're looking at this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to two different places. One is Romans chapter 3. That's where we're going to start out. And I invite you to either put a finger or a bookmark over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're in a series right now leading up to Easter that's called Crosswords. And through the course of this series, we're looking at these, these theological words that help us to understand what Christ accomplished for us through his death and his resurrection. And my prayer for us in our time together today is that as we look at what Christ has accomplished for us, that we will be able to get off that performance treadmill and instead rest in the secure identity that can be ours through Christ. So I'm going to pray for us and we're going to dive in. So, Father, we come to you this morning as people who find it so easy to look to our accomplishments, look to accolades from others, uh, to look to our performance in job and school and athletics and, and all kinds of different things and find our sense of validation from those things, Lord. But we also recognize how those things are fleeting, how even though they may offer a momentary satisfaction, the pleasure or satisfaction we get from those things will pass quickly. And Lord, today, as we come to this topic of justification, I pray that you will help us to see how when we are right with you, when you, we have your stamp of approval, that is what ultimately matters above all else. So please, Lord, give us teachable hearts, teachable minds. And I pray that you will be our teacher today through your word and spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles this morning as I begin reading in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. The Apostle Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So last week we looked at the latter part of this passage. Today we're looking at about the first half or so. And Paul in this passage is talking about this topic of righteousness. Specifically references a righteousness of God. And what that means is it's a righteousness that comes from God. Now, you may have the question of, what is righteousness? What is this talking about? And there are a number of different ways that we could define the term righteousness, but let me give us a good starting point. That righteousness means having a right standing before God. Righteousness refers to having a right standing before God. And we have to understand that in our society, because people have such a, a vested interest in trying to prove themselves and trying to earn things for themselves— People's natural default setting will be to earn favor in God's eyes, to think, you know what, I, I get this right standing before God by the things I do. 
if you don't believe me, just do a little experiment. Go out uh, today, this week. Just go around and ask people, hey, if you died and you're standing before the throne of God and he asks you why he should let you into heaven, what would you say? If you ask that question to people, as I have many different times down through the years, you would probably find that the vast overwhelming majority of people would reference things that they have done. They would reference their religious activities of saying, you know, I grew up going to church. I pray. I give money to church. They might point to their good deeds of how they help other people. They might point to their ethical, moral lifestyles. They might say, you know, I haven't killed anyone. And it's amazing how frequently that response comes up. Um, as if not killing someone is the standard for being righteous and a good person. But, but that's the way it is. People look at their own things they do, at their religious activities, their good deeds, and think these are the things that validate me before God. About nine years ago, Warren Buffett, who is one of the world's wealthiest people, he donated $30 billion to charity. That's a lot of money, isn't it? $30 billion. That was about 85% of his fortune. And soon after this, after this massive donation, he was interviewed, and he said this about the donation. He said, you know, there is more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. There's more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. So he's referencing his perspective that because he's been so generous and given away $30 billion, I mean, he still has how many billions of dollars left over, but because he's been so generous, that earns him favor in God's sight, or so he thinks. Now, what this is referencing is this idea, uh, Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, calls it a validating performance record. This is an idea of um, what we are looking to for a sense of validation. And we all have a record of some sort of performance that we are looking to for a sense of validation. For instance, let me give you a few examples of kind of simplistic validation performance records. For instance, if you want to apply for a job, what do you do? You submit a resume. Your resume is your validating performance record. It gives a record of your education, a record of your work experience. And what you're hoping is that the potential employer will find this validating and be enough of a credential to hire you. Or if you want to get into a college or a university, you, you submit your transcript. You submit an application. And you're trusting and hoping that this validating performance record will be sufficient to earn you um, acceptance into the school. These are validating performance records, and we all have these things in various parts of life. We easily look to our work or to, um, to our ministry or to our family, uh, to our service in various organizations as a form of validation. It's our validating performance record. So the question is, when we come before God, what validating performance record do we bring to him saying, God, on the basis of this performance, I expect to be welcomed into your presence. Most people in our society will point to their religious activities, their good works, things like that. Warren Buffett will point to his money that he gave. But we have to understand that we are not the ones who define how we have a right standing with God. It's God who defines the standard of righteousness. And if that's the case, we are all in big trouble. Romans 3.23 that we just read said, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is the standard, and we fall well short. In fact, back in uh, chapter 3, verse 10 of Romans, 
Paul said there is no one righteous, not even one. So, so we want to be righteous. We want to have a right standing before God, but none of us are righteous in and of ourselves. And we think, well, surely if we accrue enough good deeds, enough religious performance, that should help validate us in some sense. But in Isaiah 64, it says that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before him because they are stained by sin. And so this leaves us really in a terrible position, spiritually speaking. And I think we have to grasp how hopeless the situation is in and of ourselves, that there's no way we can validate our, our, our sense of deserving to be in God's presence by our good works. For those of you who are Packers fans, remember the Packers' last game this last season? How it ended? I can see your reactions right now. You don't want to remember it, do you? Yeah, um, they blew it big time. Um, I mean, it seems like they should have won the game. Seahawks came back. I mean, think about that feeling that you had when the Seahawks scored um, to, to win the game, to go to the Super Bowl. A sick feeling, hopeless, it's over. We lost it. So much potential, but it's gone. That is a picture of... Uh, <laughs> that is a picture of what we need to grasp when it comes to sin. That the end of ourselves is hopeless. It's over. There's nothing we can do. We should get a sick feeling of we cannot stand righteously in God's presence on our own. There's no amount of good works that's going to earn us our, our way there. It's hopeless. According to Ephesians 2, 1, we're dead in our sins and transgressions. Thankfully, though, we have a big but to begin verse 21. But now, a righteousness of God has been made known. But now there's a new era of righteousness that God has inaugurated through Jesus. And he says this righteousness in, in verse 22 is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace. So, so there's a lot in this passage. It's a very theologically dense pack, passage as we talked about last week. But I want to focus us now on this word justified. All are justified freely by his grace. Now, this talks about the term justification. Again, we may wonder, okay, what's this term justification really mean? Well, in its essence, to justify something means to declare that someone or something is righteous. It's a declaration of, of righteousness, of, of appropriateness. Let me take this out of the spiritual realm for a few minutes. Picture that you uh, come home late. Your spouse or your parents confront you and ask, where were you? Why are you late? And, and what you are doing then in offering a reason is you're seeking to justify yourself. You're giving a reason for why your motives or your actions are appropriate or righteous. You may say, well, there's an accident on the highway and it blocked all the lanes for half an hour and I couldn't get through. So that's why I'm late. You may say, well, there's an emergency I had to attend to. That's why I'm late. You're justifying your actions. Or I was in this really great conversation, this really important conversation. I couldn't break it off. So, so that's why I'm late. You're justifying your actions. You're declaring that your motives and your actions were righteous and appropriate. Now, sometimes when we try to justify things, we are not so valid in, just, in our justification. For instance... We have, we have spring coming up. Thankfully, it's not fall. We have spring coming up. We're starting to experience the warmer weather. 
as we get warmer weather and we're getting tired of being cooped up inside all winter, we may want to go outside and enjoy the weather. And, but we think, okay, we're supposed to work. But then we may think, but it's so nice. I want to be outside. I want to go walk on the beach. I want to go for a hike. I just want to go enjoy the sunshine. So we call into work sick or we make other excuses. We justify in our mind thinking, well, I deserve it. I, I need to get outside. I need to enjoy some of the springtime weather. Well, sometimes when we justify things, we give excuses, but they are not all that valid. But we're still trying to justify it, trying to make a case for our cause being righteous. And some people go a bit over the top in that justification of their cause. There is um, a, an article published in Forbes magazine recently. The article was entitled, Most Unbelievable Excuses for Calling in Sick. So here are a few examples of attempts to justify an absence from work. Maybe if you're an employer, you might recognize some of these. Here's one of them. I got, I got stuck in the blood pressure machine at the grocery store and couldn't get out. guess if that's the case, that could make you late. I'm not sure how you get stuck in one. But um, another one, I caught my uniform on fire by putting it in the microwave to dry. Again, use the dryer, especially if it has metal on it. Certainly do not put it in the microwave. Here's one I don't really quite understand how it could work, but it was, it was a legitimate, or not a legitimate, it was an actual excuse that someone gave. My false teeth flew out the window while I was driving down the highway. And I'm just wondering, how does that work? Because false teeth are supposed to be in your mouth. Um, I don't know how they get out the window. Here's another one. I just put a casserole in the oven. And... I guess, yes, casseroles do take some time, but there's some common sense that if you're supposed to go to work, don't put in a casserole before you leave for work because that is not really a valid excuse. Or, I woke up in a good mood and didn't want to ruin it. (laughs) So, and finally, someone glued my windows and doors shut in my house. And to me, that last one is just, that's a little bit over the top. Couldn't you come up with something a little bit better than that? But all these are examples, whether valid or invalid, of attempts to justify your actions or your motives. Whether it's calling in sick, whether it's being um, late for being home, whether it's um, why you don't have your homework. Well, the dog ate it. This morning I heard an excuse if I don't have a watch because my cat ate it. But this is just reality um, of we try to justify things. You know, we come back to this biblical idea of justification and it's, it's the idea of a legal context. Paul is drawing legal analogies, asking us to picture a courtroom setting with God as a judge. And to justify someone in a courtroom setting is to, to declare, based on the evidence available, that they are innocent of the charges, that they are acquitted, that they are allowed to go free. And so if we want to get a, a, a more specific definition of theological justification, it's that justification is the legal act of God in which he forgives our sin and declares us righteous in his sight. Now, there is a lot there, but it's being acquitted of sin and being declared righteous in his sight. Now, we come back to this idea of sin and wonder, how could God do that? Because we are sinful people. It doesn't make sense that he would let us go free. Romans chapter 4, verse 5 says that God justifies the ungodly. That in itself does not seem just to let a criminal who has plenty of evidence against them. We have all kinds of evidence against us in terms of sin. It doesn't make sense that he is a righteous, just judge would let us go free. But he does. So how does this work? 
Well, for this, I want to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It's a very rich passage overall, but this one verse is key for us right now. It says that God made him who had no sin, referring to Christ, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin, Jesus had no sin, but he became sin for us, took on the consequences of our sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a lot here, but let me give you a diagram to picture this concept. It's, it's called the great exchange, where we make an exchange with Jesus. He, he gets our sin. It's all transferred to him, especially in terms of the consequences. We talked about that last week. It's called the atonement. If he died on the cross, paying the wrath, the penalty we deserve for our sin. Now, for us, that works out great. For Jesus, it doesn't seem quite so fair because, you know, he didn't live a sinful life. He didn't deserve this sort of death penalty. But he took it. It's not fair, but it's grace. Grace is an unmerited, undeserved gift. And that's what we receive through Jesus' death and resurrection. So he took our sin. But there's this other part of the great exchange, which is we receive his righteousness. In him, we, we become the righteousness of God. We receive his righteousness. You know, Jesus didn't just bob down here just from heaven, just in one day later be crucified and then go back up to heaven. He lived 33 years before he was crucified. And during that time, it was a sinless life, a fully righteous life, in full obedience to God in thought, word, and action. And what he was doing during that time was essentially accruing this, this whole bank account of sorts of righteousness. He didn't undo it through his sinfulness because he didn't have any sinfulness. He accrued this account of righteousness. And now through faith in Christ, when we are justified, his righteousness is credited to our spiritual account. I mean, it's really an amazing reality to think about. And, and when we think about the gospel, oftentimes we think about forgiveness. But forgiveness is simply half of the equation. Forgiveness is when you have a debt to pay, when you've done something wrong that you need to, to fix. Forgiveness is essentially being let off the hook. And when you're forgiven, you're, that debt's no longer held against you. You're, you're set free but you really return to a place of neutrality. That's half of it. The other half is justification, where you're taken from that essentially that, that place of neutrality before God and, and given righteousness. And this is the part that oftentimes we don't recognize. And you know what? It's good to be forgiven. It's good to be returned to that state of essentially moral neutrality. But then if, if that's where God leaves us, there's going to be a temptation to want to earn favor in God's eyes. And because of our sin, we're still not going to be able to do that. But thankfully, God, the, the theological word is imputes. He imputes Christ's righteousness to our account. He deposits it in our account. Picture it this way, that you owe, say, $10 billion somewhere. I think even if all of us together tried to work off a debt of $10 billion, we still wouldn't be able to do it. Warren Buffett could. We can't. Um, so, so just picture this example. We owe $10 billion. Forgiveness is someone saying, okay, it's wiped clean. You don't need to repay it. You're forgiven. You're, you go free. That returns us to a state of $0. Justification is like someone coming along and saying, okay, I'm not just going to forgive you of that $10 billion debt. I'm actually going to then, after, after I wipe that clean, I'm going to deposit $10 billion into your account. So you go from being hopelessly indebted 
to being amazingly rich. And that is a picture of what the gospel provides for us by being justified because Christ's righteousness is credited to our account. And, and, and this allows us to be able to come confidently and even boldly, as we sang earlier, into God's holy presence. Not because of what we've done, but because of who Christ is and his, his merits of righteousness being credited to our account. I think of back when I was in, in elementary school, middle school, early high school a little bit, I rode the school bus. Now, my kids, they ride the school bus. They ride it for like five minutes. I rode the school bus for about an hour each way every day. I know I'm beginning to sound kind of like an old timer who talks about back when they used to walk five miles through the snow uphill each way. I, I really did ride the school bus for about an hour each way every day. Um, and in my school bus, it was clearly segmented of you have the front portion of the bus that's for elementary students. You have the middle of the bus that's for middle school students. And then you have the back couple rows for high school students. And there was just a couple rows because, you know, most high school students either drove themselves or they found some other way because as a high schooler, you typically don't want to be riding a bus. But so there are these clear segmented sections. And here I am as an elementary schooler. There is nothing in, in and of myself that would make me um, anything special there. Um, but I knew a couple of high schoolers. And there is this cool thing that could happen where if a high schooler takes the initiative to ask the bus driver if an elementary school student or a middle school student can come back to the high school section, they can do so. Like I said, I knew these high schoolers through other means, other, other relationships. Like I said, there was nothing in and of myself that I can recall that made them want to do that. I mean, I have these Coke bottle glasses. I'm, I'm hopelessly socially awkward at that point in my life. Thankfully, I think I've outgrown that a little bit. But... But by the merits of them being high schoolers, they could have me move back to the high school section. It wasn't because of what I did, but it's because they were high schoolers and brought me with them. And that's a picture of what we have through faith in Christ. We are justified freely through faith by his grace. And it's because we are with Christ, associated with him through faith, that we can stand confidently in God's presence with his righteousness credited to our accounts. Forgiveness says you can go free. Charges no, are no longer pending on you. Justification says you may come. And that's what Jesus invites us to do. That's what God invites us to do by crediting Christ's righteousness to our account. So when we stand before God and we think, think about, okay, why should I be led into heaven? What's your validating performance record to get into heaven? It's not our good works. It's not our religious deeds. Our validating performance record is not what we did at all. It's what Christ did for us. His performance, his obedience, his sinlessness, and his righteousness credited to our account through faith. That is our validating performance record before God. Now, what are some practical implications of this? Yes, it is important to, to obviously, we need to, place our faith in Christ and receive that justification so that we can have Christ's righteousness to stand before God. But what are some other practical implications? One is assurance of salvation. I, I talk with a lot of people who wonder, you know, I'm not really sure where I stand spiritually. I, I think I'm going to heaven. I do have faith in Christ, but still, when you ask people who, who I think are genuine believers in Christ, they still say, well, you know, 85, 90% sure I'm getting in. 
But it's very clear that justification is something that happens when a person comes to faith in Christ. Frequently in the New Testament, justification is spoken of as something that has already happened in a person's life. You have been justified. So when a person comes to faith in Christ, they are justified, meaning that Christ's righteousness is is attributed to their account. So when, when God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. And so rather than wavering back and forth on wondering, do I have salvation? Do I not? He wants us to have a confidence in coming before him rather than wavering. That we can be sure if we have that faith in Christ. We do need to examine ourselves. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith. Don't just take it for granted. But at the same time, if you are trusting in Christ, saying, Jesus, it's not because of what I do, but it's because of what you do that gets me to heaven then you can have that assurance. A second uh, practical implication is freedom from feelings of guilt. So many of us go through life with feelings of guilt, whether it's from past bad decisions that we made, even present things that aren't the best, just bad habits that keep coming up over and over and over and embarrassing us or hurting others. And it's so easy easy to carry around that sense of guilt. But we need to remember if if the divine judge has said not guilty when he has looked at us because of what Christ has done, we should not be condemning ourselves. Yes, we we still have sin in a practical sense. We still have sin in our lives. That's why Martin Luther said that we are at the same time righteous and a sinner. That positionally before God, we are righteous. Yet practically in this lifetime, we are still working out the process of sanctification. We're still um, growing in holiness. So we need to keep growing, but at the same time, not to condemn ourselves or others with feelings of guilt. Because before God, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is why over in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, Paul wrote, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. That we don't need to carry around feelings of guilt because if God has declared us not guilty, if when he looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ, we don't need to carry around feelings of guilt. So we can have freedom from that. And, and along these lines, I think of Chuck Colson. Many of you probably know his name. He passed away a couple of years ago. He was involved in the Watergate scandal uh, back with President Nixon. He went to jail for a while. And his, his story is an illustration of how sometimes, even though we shouldn't feel guilt, at the same time, we still have some temporal consequences of sin that we still have to deal with at times. And his is an example of that, but also an example of the freedom and joy that being justified before God brings with it. And I'd like to show you a brief video clip of Chuck Colson talking about this freedom that has come to him through Christ because he came to know Christ in the midst of the Watergate investigation. So take a look at the screen. And I went on Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes and I, I was trying to defend Nixon and I really couldn't defend Nixon and still be honest. So I realized that I couldn't be a Christian and go through that trial and try to defend myself. And so one day I, I sent my lawyer into the prosecutors and said, look, Chuck Colson will plead guilty. Here's something he did, which was issuing defamatory material about Daniel Ellsberg, who stole the Pentagon Papers while he was awaiting trial. And uh, that's a crime. That's obstruction of justice. So I pled guilty to it and was sentenced to prison. But I was free. 
I can remember the day I arrived in prison, I was thinking to myself, uh, this is tough. I'm going to be separated from my family. I've lost my freedom, lost my right to vote. But I thought this is a really tough deal. And I, I wasn't really frightened of the other inmates. But I knew it was going to be a lonely, depressing experience. But I felt free inside because at least I'd put the past behind me. I'd also come to terms with who I really was. And that God of power that had grown me all those years was now dethroned. And I really wanted to live. I wanted to live my life only for the living God, the one true God. So you think about Chuck Colson here is, I mean, things have just been come crashing down around him. He, he, he served this God of power for so long. That was his validating performance record, moving up in the political world, serving in, in the White House. And it all came crashing down. He's in prison. And this is why um, when he's looking at that as his validating performance record, as a sense of well-being and worth, that's how he justifies his existence. When, when things come crashing down like that, that's why you see many people in those positions become depressed or even suicidal. Because their sense of well-being has come crashing down. But for him, because he recognizes now what Christ has done for him, and he's received that by faith, he says, I am free. He still has some temporal consequences of sin to deal with, namely prison. But he is free. And that's what we can experience when we, we recognize justification and Christ's righteousness coming to our account. And finally, in relationship with that, we recognize that God's opinion is what matters most. It's so easy to look at other people's opinions of us, to look at our opinions of ourselves, to try to validate ourselves by the amount of money we make, by our grades, by our athletic accomplishments, by pats on the back that we get from others, by how we think we look in the mirror, by how many cars we have, how nice our house is, all kinds of different things. But those things are fleeting. Those will never satisfy us. And the opinions of others really don't matter all that much. When we see how God views us, I think of Larry Crabb, a Christian author and counselor. He said, somehow we fail to grasp that God's acceptance makes anyone else's rejection no more devastating than a misplaced dollar would be to a millionaire. We foolishly believe that other people's acceptance represents a legitimate measure of our value. It doesn't. Other people's acceptance really doesn't measure whether we're worthwhile, who we are, anything like that. It's God's opinion that matters. And if our faith is in Christ and he looks at us and sees Christ's righteousness imputed to us, then if, you, if we have his approval, it doesn't matter what other people think. And that's the validating performance record that we need to cling to that can help set us free from that performance treadmill of thinking we constantly need to prove ourselves. The gospel can set us free. And that is why Eric Little when he was talking about running, he says, when I run, I feel the joy of God. Because he's not looking to his running as a sense of validation. He's not looking to that as a sense of worth or well-being or his reason for existence. He's able to be free to enjoy it, to enjoy God in the process. Because he knows that his validating performance record is Christ and not what he does. I want to close with my favorite passage of scripture. Uh, it's Philippians 3, 8, but I'm going to go on to the next verse, which is very relevant for us today. Paul says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may be found in Christ and have his righteousness, having a righteousness, not of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that comes from God. 
So he says, I have this righteousness that comes from God. And that is now what defines me. Therefore, everything else, all these other things, these other credentials that I thought validated me in the past, they fade away because of the greatness of knowing Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to this world. You came to live a perfect life and that you passed on that righteousness to us at the same time that you were paying the penalty for our sin. Lord, we thank you that you were willing to do this. And I pray that each one of us will receive by faith this justification and this righteousness that you offer. And that we will live in light of these realities. That we will not just hear them and let them go in one ear and out the other. But that we will recognize that really your opinion of us is what matters the most. And that we will get off that performance treadmill and rest in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.